Okay, John's Gospel, chapter 20, that's uh, 1089 in the Church Bible. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. One of my favourite Christian leaflets to give away is this one by Roger Carswell. I'm sorry I forgot to have a picture of it for the big screen, uh, but maybe you can see the title back there. It says, and now for some good news. And now for some good news. And one of the reasons why I love this leaflet is the way in which Roger so helpfully brings out that the message of the Bible for those who believe is really, really good news. And I don't know this morning uh, how you consume your news, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's on a tablet, whether you follow a news feed or listen or watch something, but however you consume your news, you will not find anywhere in all the world where you will hear as news as good as we read about in our passage this morning. Because this is one of the final two chapters in John's Gospel that John gives to telling us the wonderful news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And over the next few weeks, we are going to work through these six different 
uh, stories, not sure how I'll break them all up yet, but there were six different stories of different people who get to hear that Jesus has risen and they get to hear what that means for their lives. And as we listen in, we'll learn what it means for us as well. So today we're, we're going to look at the first of those two six stories, and it's in the passage that Nigel read for us in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. In the first 10 verses, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus Christ, um, uh, how that news is shared with two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John. And then in the second part from verses 11 to 18, we'll see how that news comes to a devoted grieving follower in Mary. And I want us to see in these two stories that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is good news for everyone. That's a big thought. It is good news. I think that's what's the center of these two accounts. And we're just going to have three points. I haven't got slides this morning, but three points to help us to work through it. And the first is that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is good news because it stands up to scrutiny. It stands up to scrutiny because Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection isn't just a feature of the Christian message. It is the main thing. It is one of the central claims upon which Christianity stands or falls. Because without the resurrection, we would not know if Jesus' death had been sufficient to pay for our sins. But with the resurrection, we are assured that his death was enough because it was God's mark of approval and acceptance of the offering of the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. Without the resurrection, there would be no hope beyond the grave. But with the resurrection, we are assured of eternal glory if we believe in the Lord Jesus. And we're promised that we will have renewed bodies like the Lord Jesus' renewed body in a gloriously renewed creation. So with this truth of Jesus' resurrection, so much is at stake. But the question is, does it stand up to scrutiny? Because if it really matters, did it really happen? And that's the first thing that comes out for us in these first uh, 10 verses. Because as we begin in chapter 20, if you have a Bible, follow along with me. You'll notice there that the darkness of the morning, and John loves to do this, doesn't he? He loves to make reference to the natural circumstances and conditions to bring out what's actually going on and how we should be feeling. And there's a, a darkness to the morning that is reflected in the darkness of Jesus' followers' hearts. Because Mary there goes to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, and none of the disciples are with her. It's just her, because they don't have any expectation that Jesus will be raised. They think that everything is lost, and Mary is going there to grieve. She is growing out of her devotion. But as she comes there to the tomb, she finds a stone has been removed. She runs back to tell Peter and the other disciple, which is John, the author of this gospel's way of referring to himself. He's the other disciple. So you've got Peter and John who hear this news, and that news that Jesus' body is gone from the tomb is so shocking that the two disciples uh, run back, sorry, that the tomb is empty, that the two disciples run back to try and see themselves. Now, you have this lovely detail that um, 
They don't get there at the same time. <laughs> John gets there, gets there first, and we think that the most likely reason for that is that John was younger, and so Peter uh, was faster, which as a, a father of growing boys, I know all too well. But as John arrives there first at the tomb, as he gets there, he looks and he sees linen cloths, but he doesn't enter. He sees the body gone. Peter arrives after him and impulsively keeps going. He goes straight there into the tomb, and then we read that John eventually follows him. Now, there's a very interesting and significant detail to pick up in the progression of the ways in which the disciples' uh, observation of the scene develops. Because in verse 5, we read that when John, as he gets there first, he bends over and looks in. And, and the, the idea there in the original is of just a, a, a short glance, a thought he's, he looks inside and he steps away. In verse 6, we read that Simon Peter comes there um, and he, middle of the verse, he saw the strips of linen lying there. And the word there has a sense of a more careful examination of what's going on inside, of taking in more of the details. And then in verse 8, John will eventually go in, and as he goes in, middle of verse 8, he saw, which is a different word in the original, which our translators have translated in the same way, but it has the same sense of a more careful examination of the scene and what's going on. So what's being signaled to us here is that as those two disciples take in more and more of what they see in that event, in that moment there in the tomb, two things uh, come out to them as they take in more of the detail. They notice that the tomb is empty as they examine it carefully. And so they realize the body of Jesus is gone. But then they also notice the linen cloths and a separated headcloth. Now, it's very interesting that, that John here highlights something specific. And, and when someone does that, there's always a reason for it. The gospel writers don't waste their words, and none of the gospel writers tells us about this scene in the same degree of detail. It's not a contradiction, but John tells us more detail because he tells us there, verse 7, that, um, sorry, end of verse 6 and verse 7, that, he, uh, that there in the tomb, Peter and then John sees that there are strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that have been wrapped around, around Jesus' head. Um, the cloth was still lying in place, separate from the linen. Now, we're going to think about that in a moment. It's an important fact. So, these facts that the body of Jesus has gone... But the cloths that were wrapping Jesus' body are still there, leads to the clear conclusion that Jesus' body has not been stolen or taken to another tomb. Because that's what some want to say. So if Jesus' friends had taken the body, well, they wouldn't have wrapped, unwrapped the cloths from the body because they would want to treat it with dignity. So they're not going to have done that. If, if grave robbers had taken Jesus' body, then they would likely have kept those linen cloths on out of convenience. Or if they did remove them, they would have thrown them to one side in haste, not put them back where they were. They would get out quickly because that's what robbers do, isn't it? And if the Jews had taken, the Jewish leaders had taken Jesus' body, they would not have kept, they would have kept the cloths on out of cleanliness and also out of a desire to not give the impression that anything special had happened. 
But I particularly want us to focus upon the detail about the arrangement of the cloths. Because that seems to be something that particularly strikes John as he records what he sees there in the tomb. Because we know from last week at the end of John 19 that Jesus was buried according to Jewish burial customs. And the way Jews would bury people is they would take the body and they would wrap it in linen cloths and they would put spices there on the body and the strips of linen as they laid it on there. And they would wrap all the way up to the shoulders and the neck and they would stop. And then there would be a separate cloth they would have wrapped around the person's head. So there were two separate parts of what they were doing. And it would have been bound really tight. To remove them, it would have taken help, and it certainly would have created mess. And that is why when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, back in John chapter 11, having brought Lazarus from death to life, what does he say? He says, unbind him and let him go, because Lazarus needs help. Because he would be so tightly bound by these cloths in that sense. But as Peter and John look there in the tomb at the place where Jesus has been laid, they see the linen and the headcloth there in place where the body and head of Jesus would have been. They were separated in the same way at which they would have been separated when they were on his body, except his body isn't there. And so it seems that in his resurrection, in some sense, Jesus has has perhaps passed through the cloths in that sense. It is not like he has been unwrapped and then uh, uh, it's like he has been set free from them because they remain exactly where they would have been when he was left there, buried in the tomb. And those two things, the empty tomb, but the cloths left in that particular arrangement lead John to the conclusion that something really amazing has happened. Because in verse 8 we read, they saw, he saw, and he believed. The empty tomb, the cloths in place, and the cloths exactly where the body, there the body and the head would have been, separated in that sense. Now, John doesn't understand everything that he sees. Verse 9 indicates that he does not yet understand that there is a connection between Jesus' resurrection and what the Old Testament had predicted. And so he didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. If he'd known that, he would have realized this was something God had promised. But it's clear from these details that John, there verse 8, looks and he believes that his Savior is alive. Now, we don't have time to talk about the many appearances of the Lord Jesus. We could go through them. Nor do we have time to to talk about the way in which the disciples' reaction to the resurrection makes it clear that they were not involved in an elaborate hoax because they themselves were both surprised and, well, they looked rather foolish through it all, didn't they? But these verses are part of a wider argument right through the Bible that the resurrection is a historical claim that as you look at it in more and more detail, you find that it stands up to scrutiny. The deeper you look, the more convincing it becomes. And that's what happens with anything that's true, isn't it? However hard it might be to believe it at first. A few years ago, someone tried to break into our home overnight, and 
I was thankful that Naomi and the boys were not there. They were away. I was there alone. And I was thankful that's a rare thing, that someone tries to break into your house. It had never happened to us before. And none of us wants to think that someone has tried to break in when we're asleep, and it's never the first thing that you jump to. And so as I started to notice the evidence downstairs in our home the following morning, it wasn't my first conclusion. As I was eating my breakfast in the kitchen, I was looking out into the garden, I noticed there was a crack in the kitchen window. And my first and most natural uh, conclusion and explanation, and most comfortable, was, of course, that the boys had broken the window while playing with the ball in the garden. But then I went outside. I thought, I should take a look at that. And I noticed marks on the frame. And I thought, hmm, that's unusual. I walked further around. I saw our garden chair. One of the garden chairs had been moved. It was underneath one of the security lights, which was hanging off the wall and not working. And I thought, hmm, something's happened here. And as I walked around the outside of our house and took in all the individual bits of evidence that were there, I had to come to the conclusion that what was the most, in some ways, unexpected explanation and in some ways uncomfortable to me, was the only reasonable conclusion when you put together all the evidence. And friends, a resurrection is just like that. It's just like that, that the deeper you look at it, the more convincing the evidence becomes, the more full and extensive the case is. But sometimes when you make that point, people still won't look seriously into it. For some, it's because they have, if they're honest, their prior faith commitment to never believe in the possibility of a miracle or the supernatural. And that's not a fair way to approach a resurrection, is it? That's not to approach it with an open mind. Miracles may not be common, but they're not impossible, especially if there is a supernatural God who is active in our worlds. For others, perhaps they're close to the possibility of the resurrection because they know it would be life-changing and life-challenging. And that kind of a challenge is too much for them. And so they don't look into it either. Let me ask you this morning. Have you really seriously looked in detail at the evidence for the resurrection? You're here and you're not a Christian. We're delighted you're with us today. Or you're thinking about it or you're not sure. Have you dug into the details? We've only looked at one short passage this morning. But if you give time to take it all in and look at how the Bible presents Jesus' resurrection, it is an amazing event that stands up to detailed scrutiny. You know, when the invitation team go out to speak to people on the doors in Leamington, they take, I think, three main leaflets with them. One is about the church, one is a a gospel of Mark, and the third book they take is this one, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. And they take it with them because in this book, Val Grieve goes through all the evidence in Scripture, in God's Word, to point to the fact that the resurrection is such an event that stands up to close and detailed scrutiny. There are some of these books on the table as you come in. If you want one from me, come and ask me for one. I would love to give it to you. Reading it will cost you just a few hours, but if it's true, it could change your life, couldn't it? look into it. The resurrection is good news because it stands up to scrutiny, but it also is good news, and here's the second point. It's good news because it can't stand up to scrutiny, but it's also good news because it means that it brings to us the joy of knowing God personally. 
It means we can know God personally. As we move to verses 11 to 18, the shift moves from the two disciples to Mary. And Mary has remained outside of the tomb. She has not understood that Jesus is risen. And so she continues to grieve his death, and she is particularly distressed. And this comes out a number of times in the passage, that his body has been removed. Her devotion to her Savior is challenging, isn't it? It's challenging because after Jesus' death, she, along with several other women, are the ones who are prepared to show far more courage than the disciples in being identified with the Lord Jesus, who has just been crucified. They're prepared to do that out of their devotion. And there we read in verse 11 that having come to the tomb and having remained outside, she is crying and weeping. But notice God's grace to Mary. He sends two angels. And when she goes in, and she, and she, well, she can see those two angels there in the tomb. And they sit, interestingly, in the place where Jesus' head and feet would have been. Perhaps to draw attention to the absence of the body. Or the location of the grave clothes, as we were talking about before, in those two separate garments. And their question, verse 13, is so kind, isn't it? Because it hints, why are you crying? What does it hint at? <laughs> There's a reason not to cry. <laughs> There's a reason to know joy. But she is fixated upon the location of her Savior's body. And so God in his grace, the Lord Jesus in his grace, comes to show her his body in his renewed, resurrected life. Because he doesn't want to leave her in despair and unbelief. And so she turns around with the tomb behind her and she finds the resurrected Christ is before her. But she doesn't realize it's him. How could you fail to recognize him? Does that have a strike? How did you not know it wasn't him? Well, we're not told exactly. So we can think, well, maybe it was the morning haze. Maybe it was the tears in her eyes. Perhaps it could be that Jesus' resurrected body looked somewhat different. He still had the wounds, but his face would have been freed from all the evidences of suffering that would mar and disfigure someone's appearance during extreme pain, wouldn't it? And he would have had a transformed, resurrected body. And it seems that, that his transformed appearance does initially confuse some of his other followers at other times in other occasions when they see him resurrected. But whatever the reason, Jesus continues to lead her gently to the right conclusion, continues to show her grace and kindness. And even the phrasing of his question, when she thinks he is a gardener to her, is pointing to uh, hope. Look at verse 15. He doesn't ask what she seeks, because that would be appropriate if she was looking for a lifeless corpse. Rather, he says, who are you seeking? Who is it you are looking for? Which again, hints to the fact he is alive again. But it's only when he speaks her name that she realizes it's him. Maybe it's because he speaks her name in the Aramaic form, Miriam rather than the more common Greek, Maria. Perhaps it's the tone of voice that she, he uses. Perhaps it's the very fact that he knows her name. Whatever it is, 
And maybe it's all those things or some of them. What matters is that she recognizes this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who calls his sheep by name. And they know his voice. And sometimes, friends, as we see Mary here in her grief and the way the Lord deals with her in her grief, sometimes it is only a personal encounter with the risen Christ as he comes to us by his Spirit in that sense as believers today that turns us from tears to joy. Friends, you must never forget that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It is a faith that is grounded upon facts, and we rejoice in that. But it is about the personal presence of Christ in your soul. It is about knowing God personally. And there are times when we can know the same kind of grief that Mary was knowing, and it is only Christ coming to us by his Spirit in this personal way that's enough to sustain us and to lift us up. Isn't it interesting that the promise of Psalm 23, that glorious psalm that we, many of us know so well and treasure about the Lord as my shepherd. (laughs) God does not give us the facts just of his shepherding care as we go through the deep valleys. He promises to come to us, to be with us, to be there alongside us. And maybe we see something of that here in how the Lord deals with Mary in his kindness in coming to be with her and to turn her from grief to joy. And the resurrection means that we can know that same personal presence and relationship that Mary knew on that first Lord's Day morning, only better. And that's what we need to focus on as we come down to verse 17, where Jesus brings out two ways in which the resurrection means our faith is personal and joyful. And the the first thing that comes out there in verse 17, we're still in this point, the resurrection brings joy of knowing God. The thing that first comes out in verse 17 is this blessing of Christ's ascension. The resurrection means there can be blessings that flow from Christ's ascension. Look at verse 17, because there at the start, Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, Now, why does Jesus say this? Well, it's not because... No one is ever allowed to touch him in his resurrected body because Jesus will later invite doubting Thomas to to see and to touch him, won't he? So it can't be for that reason. But I think what's going on here is that for Mary, she has come to believe that Jesus is alive. She has responded. Rabboni, teacher, she knows it's him. She knows this is her Lord and Master. And so Jesus wants her and all the disciples to know that although he is risen, and risen indeed, he is leaving. And that is significant, because in his leaving and ascension to the right hand of the Father, that will lead to enormous blessings for God's people. Because it will unlock all the wonderful gifts that Jesus has been promising, particularly in John's Gospel. We spent, I don't know how it was, it maybe felt like months, but we spent a long time in that, up, what we called the upper room, didn't we? Do you remember? And we work through the detail of what Christ spoke to his his followers there about his departure and how he was showing to them, reminding to them, pressing home to them that it was good that he left because he was saying that in his leaving, so much good was going to come to them. 
And that is what Jesus is, is, is reminding his followers of here. He is reminding them that as he goes to heaven, he will reign over his people. As he goes to heaven, he will intercede before the Father for them. And perhaps most significantly for John's gospel, from heaven he will send the Spirit who will come and live in the heart of every believer so that they will know the presence of Christ by his Spirit inside of them each day. And so we can say that in that way, Christ's ascension and the sending of the Spirit will bring even greater blessings than the physical presence of Christ there for Mary and the disciples. Because he will be inside us, and he is inside you if you're a Christian today. Because by the Spirit, we will be known personally and closely. We will know God personally and closely wherever we are. And that is why it is so important, that reality of the ascension, it is so important that the message that Mary is, 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 is told to speak to the disciples is that Christ has not just risen, but what? He is ascending. He is going to his Father. Because it points to those greater blessings that are to come. Now, isn't this one of the many occasions in God's Word where we're reminded that we don't look back on those first disciples and need to think, I wish I was there? Because all the blessings that were promised to them are ours today by faith. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's not less, it's the same because it's Him. We need to keep going. And we're going to notice one more element of this highlight, of this personal implication. We know God, we know the blessings of the ascension, but we also know God personally. Again, we're in verse 17. You know, to be a Christian means that you don't just know God like someone knows another important person in the world. It's not like, you know, you could say, I, I, I know someone important who came to open a building at my children's school because I met them once, or I wrote a letter to a significant person, and they replied via a secretary and maybe a stamped signature, or whatever it was. To be a Christian means you know God in a personal way. And that's what comes out for us in the second part of verse 17, because Jesus presses home just how deeply personal it is. He tells Mary to go to my brothers and tell them. Notice that, my brothers. This is the first time in John's Gospel, where Jesus refers to the disciples as his brothers. In John 15, I think it is, I haven't noted, I think it's John 15, he calls them his friends. But here he says, they are my brothers. Now what's going on there? Well, it's pointing to the fact that Christ's death and resurrection means that by faith we join the family of God, where Christ is our elder brother, Hebrews 2 unpacks us even more. And so this relationship we have with God is personal and real. We're in God's family. And then, of course, friends, of course, we cannot miss there at the end of verse 17 those prepositions that there communicate the personal relationship that Christ has and we by faith and by the Spirit have with his God and Father. He says, I am going to my God and to your God, to my Father, and to your Father. 
the Jews would speak of God the Father, but would never use a personal pronoun to express a relationship. And we know that that personal pronoun means a world, doesn't it? Because of all it communicates. That separation of our sin from a holy God is gone. Because he's died and he's risen. And that means that every believer's true privilege is and always will be that they can say that the Lord is my Lord, that the Lord is my God, and that the Lord is my Father. Christ's resurrection makes a Christian faith personal, which is the key to joy. That's why it's a source of great joy. We do not just know him, we know him as our God, as my God. And that's the kind of joy that motivated C.T. Studd, an outstanding athlete. I've just been enjoying reading this biography of C.T. Studd this week. An outstanding athlete who was converted as a young man to write these words that jumped out to me. Formerly, I had as much love for cricket as any man could have. But when the Lord Jesus came into my heart, I found that I had something infinitely better than cricket. Amen? Amen. What a privilege, friends. That's the key to joy. And then, as we close, thirdly and finally, we've seen that resurrection is good news because it stands up to scrutiny. It is good news because it brings the joy of knowing God personally. And it is good news because it's the source of real hope. In verse 18, Mary is entrusted with a wonderful message to go and share with the disciples. What does she say? I have seen the Lord. That is what she can say. And when they hear that news and they themselves meet the risen Christ, they go and they preach that message to the ends of the earth. And we cannot use exactly the same words as Mary, can we? But we can declare the same reality when we say Christ is risen. And we can speak of that same way in which we know him personally in our hearts by faith because we serve a risen saviour. And the hopeful implications of the resurrection are just as powerful today. Remember how we started by talking about how the resurrection is central? And we said without the resurrection, hope is gone. But with the resurrection, there is hope. And friends, as we come to a close, I just want to remind us all, and we know this, I know we know this well, but I think there are times when this needs to come home to us in, in special ways, that, that people really need hope of the resurrection. You know, I was really saddened by a conversation I had with someone this week who didn't know the Lord, and it should always move us, but I was particularly moved speaking to someone this week because it was so hard to hear that they had no real hope because all their hopes for the future were tied up in this world. I was Simeon reminded us of the words of Christ in seeking the kingdom of heaven and not just having your eyes on things here and now, but that's what so many have, isn't it? And it was so hard to hear that they had so little joy because they only knew the disappointments and dissatisfaction that comes from living in a broken world. And that's very common. 
That should strike us whenever we speak to anyone who doesn't know the Lord. Because to be without God is to be without hope in the world. And right now, there is lots that's genuinely hard about our world. We know that, don't we? We know it in our own country, we could talk about lots of things. We know it around our world, we could talk about all the sad and hard things that are going on. And some see that, and they blame others, and get bitter and angry, and they live with all the bitterness that comes from that, because they, they have no hope. Others see all that happens in our world and in their own lives, and they try to dull the pain with distractions and depressants. About 120, sorry, 210,000, sorry, 210,000 people are in Glastonbury this weekend. Distraction. Seeking to forget the reality of a life without hope. And friends, if this world is really all that there is, and if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then, well, let's eat and drink and be merry, because tomorrow we die, and that's the end. But friends, the resurrection means that isn't true. If tomorrow we die, there's hope beyond the grave, isn't there? If tomorrow we live then we're able to live for something that's eternal and that's lasting and that never fades. And that is a message that people need to hear. That is a message of hope that our world needs. And God's given it to us. He said, go. We have good news to share, don't we? We have great news to share. Real joy. Real hope. Eternal life. What a privilege. Let's take it this week. To our friends. To our families. On the doorsteps. On the parade. When the Commonwealth Games arrives on the beaches, on the camps. There's nothing better. Friends, the world wants to tell us that we don't have great things to share, but God's words tells us we do. So let's tell the world of Jesus.